This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week, we welcome back Nate Adams, the house whisperer. For a show on the importance of air sealing for IAQ and energy efficiency, before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show about afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. at TSI.com. Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. All right, no Z-Man today, and today's trivia question is dedicated to Victor Cafaro, a longtime audience member and dear friend who passed earlier this week. Victor was the kind of friend you can only hope to be lucky enough to have. We met in the late 70s when he was making eyeglasses with another friend in the Pittsburgh area. My family spent many Christmas holidays visiting Vic and Pat at their home in Penn Hills before they moved to Chesterfield, Virginia. Vic always kept in touch with the old Pitt gang. Anybody that knew Vic would say one thing about him, the nicest guy I know. He was a gentle giant, an avid talk show fan that never forgot a birthday or a holiday. Vic loved the holidays, and you never knew when a package would arrive with some thoughtful gift. Vic was one of our most loyal audience members for many years and will be sorely missed. One of my most fond memories was when he and Pat came to our Healthy Building Summit, and Pat spoke to the crowd. He was so proud of Dr. Cafaro, you could see his chest swell up whenever he talked about her. Rest in peace, my friend. Okay, today's trivia question. Per capita, which country has the most electric vehicles and most charging stations per electric vehicle? All right, today's guest is Nate Adams, the house whisperer. He is the author of the Home Comfort Book and the Air Sealing Course. He's helped numerous clients in the Cleveland, Ohio area electrify while making their homes healthier. Now he's teaching HVAC contractors how to naturally sell heat pumps through the HVAC 2.0 technical sales process. His most recent projects have been completion 
of the air sealing course, and he continues to practice what he preaches while working on his Airbnb rentals in wild and wonderful West Virginia. Welcome back, Nate. Uh, it's good to be back, Joe. Yeah, sorry, sorry about Vic. That's that that makes for a bumpy week. So yeah, it's been a rough week. He was a great man, uh, but you know. Uh, he would want us to continue soldiering on here. Hey, uh, let's talk a little bit about the electrify everything movement. Nate. Um, why, why do you think it, why is electrification? I have one of your shirts, electrify everything. I'm uh, one. Why, why is it so important to you? Um, it, it's just kind of the future. It's just where we're going. Um, Renewable electricity is now the cheapest source of energy that mankind has known in history. Uh, so it's really just a matter of time till we get there. And then there's a whole lot of other side benefits to it. I mean, you talk to anyone in the armed forces, what's the number one reason that we're out there? Uh, it's because we're protecting our oil interests and our fossil fuel interests. So uh, if we can actually run on uh, more renewable energy. We can make all the stuff to do that here. The IRA has been really good for that, actually. And um, we can make the, both the equipment to generate the power and the power here. And we get clean air and clean water. Um, what's the name of the show again? Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, there's a whole lot of good things that come out of it. Uh, so it's just where things are going. And uh, I don't it, it almost seems like magic, you know, pulling power out of the air and out of the sun. And then heat pumps definitely feel like one of the closest things to magic that we have, even though I understand how they work when I, I get the refrigeration cycle. But still, we, we pull heat out of the air, even when it's cold, and we pump that inside of a house. It's pretty cool. So it, this is just where we're going, because sooner or later, we're going to run out of stuff to burn anyway. Um, so... I'd love to see that get accelerated. And I mean, geez, I was first talking about this. I think it was with Bill Spohn was one of the first times I talked about this must've been like 17 or 18. Uh, so this is something we've been talking about for a long, long time. And now you're seeing a movement to it. Uh, but one curse is it's becoming pretty heavily politicized at this point, which is annoying. Um, it's, they're not coming for your gas stoves. <laughs> <laughs> like that was quite to blow up um and it's that's a tricky thing with the the name heat pump i was just talking to my wife the other day she's like i don't like the name it makes it sound like it can't cool i'm like well it is actually well named because it can pump heat anywhere you want either from inside to out or from outside to in um but it does take a slight explanation to get it there um so I've definitely heard a few people be like, you're trying to take your air conditioners away. Like, no, I'm trying to give your air conditioner reverse gear because the difference between an air conditioner and a heat pump is basically just being able to run backwards. So it's like two identical cars, one that has a reverse gear and one that doesn't. Aside from that, they're functionally identical. Um, so it, it will never be taking air conditioners away. It will be adding a second source of heat. All right. Well, hey, you know, your most recent project here, well, there's two. The HVAC, HVAC 2.0 technical sales process, you've been working on that here recently. I'm just curious with the new uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, funny name, um, and then, uh, you know, with that with that going on and, and these incentives that are a part of that, um, I've seen some some posts from you that that kind of indicate you don't think those incentives are going to really help all that much. 
No, they're 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 pretty poorly structured. Um, so the the two state programs are going to end up with fifty different sets of rules. I mean, we did an episode on this last October, um, and it, I I kept looking for the silver lining. The only silver lining I can see will be long term. The manufacturers will get better at making products that have better output at lower temperatures. So, but my big concern is short term. Uh, there's there's all of these different issues that come with it that relate to the experience of both the contractors and the homeowners. Uh, so for one, from a sales process perspective, when you have an incentive, so the federal incentive that that's going to keep going, where the state incentives are going to have 50 sets of rules and they're they're uh, limited in their funding and, and they're also income limited. So they're going to be kind of tricky to actually use with those. Uh, the federal incentive is a flat two grand. Um, well, it's a, up to 30%, but everybody's going to pay you know, upwards of six grand for one of these things. Um, uh, but uh, when you have an incentive, it brings price and equipment selection to the beginning of the conversation. And that's not where you want to begin in sales. That's just not where you want to be. It's out of order. Um, equipment selection and pricing go to the end of the process, not the beginning. So this brings it to the forward uh, side of things. And now that we understand what qualifies and what doesn't, uh, like the the Daikin Fit is something that we have two of in two of our Airbnbs. And I really like that product, but only the two-ton unit qualifies presently. So not the one and a half, the two and a half, the three, the four, or the five. Um, and that's a nice mid-priced product that is super useful to those of us in the field. Um, but it only works if we can sell a two-ton. And then my my favorite piece of equipment, which is the five-stage carrier, doesn't have the world's best cold temperature performance. And that doesn't qualify in the north at all. And in the south, you have to use the largest air handler. And that air handler is so large that it typically won't fit through an attic hatch. Hmm. So in the South, there's lots of attic systems, um, and it can be hard to get through the hatch going into a crawl space or something as well. Uh, so it's just, it's a, it's a big beast, but you have to use that to get your SEER rating. So there's just all of these things that when you put them all in, it's like, this doesn't make our lives easier in the field. It makes it harder. You think there's a chance they can fix some of those things over time? Not really. Um, not, not the way that they're structured. That's it, fundamentally... Uh, a bad foundation has been built. If you have a building with a bad foundation, what are your two choices? Mm-hmm. It's either tear it down or replace the foundation. Um, and that's it. This is a federal bill. So what are the odds of getting Republicans and Democrats to agree on anything right now? Um, Not real good, so Nate. <laughs> for, for a complete rebuild, that's that's what it would take. So, yeah, I'm. it's only going to affect the top part of the market. Uh, one of my biggest fears is an indoor air quality fear. I think we are setting ourselves up for a redux of sick building syndrome. Because and how the is that? Way, so the, the cheapest way to meet the IRA uh, requirements is to use a mini split outdoor unit, but uh, attach it to a dumb American indoor unit, one that isn't communicating. Um, and so that can't vary the coil temperature. And so they tend to, if you want to get good cold temperature output, you have to uh, run it in a way that you generally don't get good dehumidification. You can't run the coil cold. 
that's just it, it you can pick one or the other it's like variable valve timing but you don't have variable valve timing uh, and so the cheapest units that meet that have sensible heat ratios of 0.9 to even almost one, like 0.99, which means they're doing one to 10% dehumidification. And you really need a minimum of 20 to 30 for most climates. And ideally you have a system that can hit 50% when it needs to. So we're, we're going to be putting in these oversized systems to try and meet heat load that also are really bad at dehumidification naturally. And we're going to make houses wet. And that leads to good things, right? Mm, always. <laughs> so, and the, the bad part is like, this takes a couple of years usually to really show up. Um, like the first year people will start noticing, but before the, the really bad ramifications and the health ramifications hit, it usually takes a couple of years. And so I, I just, everything I see out of this looks like bad PR to me. I was like, uh, this is going to be a nightmare when it hits. And it's really hard to see the train uh, train wreck coming. Like I can see the two trains from space, like uh, coming together on the same track. And I know they're going to crash, but I can't tell anyone. Well, I'm trying, but there's, there's like no way to fix it. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. That's, uh, you know, we were hoping that maybe that would be something good for the industry. What, let's talk a little bit about the air sealing um, you, you developed a course for air sealing here recently. I want to focus on how air sealing helps with indoor air quality. Let's start there. How does it help? Well, air sealing Maybe is- first, let's start with describing what air sealing is so that people are, you know, we're all using the same terminology. That makes too much sense. Um, you can't all be confused and use the same uh, different terms, but be talking about the same thing. I mean, that's construction. Um, what are we talking about again? Oh, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, air sealing is basically sealing up any little gap in between inside and outside of a building. So, or if you think about like a house as a boat, if you've got a leak in the hall, naturally you want to seal that up. Um, and there's there's really no limit to how tight you can get something. But at some point, you do also want to, for indoor air quality, bring in some outdoor air, which we talked about with the Badass HVAC episode a little while back. Um, So we always like to bring some of that in. But if you have a leaky house, it's like a leaky boat. It's uncontrollable. Uh, And like if you have a leaky boat, do you need to put a bigger bilge pump in? Do you need to put a bigger engine in? No, you need to fix the leaks. That's the fundamental problem that has to happen. So houses can be pretty tight to really leaky, but uh, if you want to be able to actually control indoor air quality, it needs to be at least reasonably tight. It doesn't need to be great, but it needs to be okay. What's a uh, number so, on? Put a number on reasonably tight. What we aim for is a one-to-one uh, CFM 50, the blower door number, a cubic feet per minute at 50 Pascal. So a one-to-one CFM 50 to above ground square footage. So like this little house I'm sitting in here that we bought in West Virginia, it's, it's 1150 square feet, just a little guy. Um, so I would like the blower door on this to be an 1150 CFM 50 or lower. Um, ironically, I haven't retested. I tested in at 1500, but I haven't retested after we did some, some work. <laughs> That's the curse of it uh, being your own place. And when you're too busy working on other stuff and you got to go pull the tools from different places because everything's scattered now, I, I haven't done it. But in any case, that one-to-one is kind of where we find that houses start to be controllable, where HVAC can actually uh, keep comfort levels good and also have decent control over air quality. 
Um, it's also important. It's it's one of the biggest factors in heating load. So cooling load as well, but it's more of a heating load thing because you have stack effect, which we'll be talking about. But if you have like an older home, like a three to one ratio is fairly common, like Pittsburgh, you know, where you're from or Cleveland, where I'm from, you get an old house that's built 1900 to 1950. It's probably a three to one kind of ratio thing. And those are really hard to heat and cool. And they're really hard to control the air quality inside of. So uh, part of getting that load down, which also gets it to where a heat pump will actually handle the heat load, that um, you don't always have to do that. In fact, we're surprised how many you don't for a heat pump. We found that about half of houses in Cleveland, you could change the furnace to a heat pump, put some resistance strip in and move on with life. Just be done. Uh, I was surprised that that happened that much. But manual J comes in way too high. The industry standard load calcs usually double uh, what actual heat load is, which makes things hard. Whole nother discussion. Um, but uh, for day for today in talking air sealing, it's basically using caulk and foam to seal up all the little gaps and cracks that are in a house. And when you see the the tips for winter energy savings and stuff where it's like caulk around your windows, it doesn't freaking matter. It's not very much leakage. Windows don't actually hardly leak. It's the, the rough openings around oh. them that usually leak. But uh, it, anyway, in, in the air sealing side of things, it, you, pretty much all the stuff that you want to deal with is in places that you don't want to go. So it's in attics and basements and crawl spaces. Um, it's in nasty places or the, the bowels of a home, as I call it. Um, and, uh, oh, shoot, what was the, I can't remember his name right offhand. But he, he had a funny line. It was, uh, if it hurts to get to, it saves energy, uh, which can be pretty true. So uh, th this course ended up being almost 1,300 slides, and it's 12 and a half hours. Um, but uh, this is, you know, over a decade's worth of work boiled down into what you can learn in a couple of days, which, man, I wish I had this years ago. Um, this would have made life a lot easier. But back when I wrote my book, the Home Comfort book, I had a whole bunch of illustrations made. You can see some of them here. And uh, what drove me nuts was uh, when it came to air sealing, I found that the information was either highly, highly technically detailed. Uh, so like it, it'd be uh, all the different pieces of a building assembly. And you really needed to be pretty expert to be able to read that and really understand what was going on. Or it was backed way up like the tip that I was joking about of caulk your windows, uh, which is bas basically worthless and doesn't contain enough information to do anything. So uh, I like to think a lot about why I'm doing something as I'm doing something. Uh, and the, the how and the what are also important, but the, the why is a lot of what I wanted. So what I wanted to be able to do was create something where there's these illustrations that simplify what the building uh, assemblies look like, but then also show what it looks like with the work getting done. So you can see all parts of it. You understand why you're doing it, you know what you're doing, uh, you know how you're doing it. So that's what I was aiming for. And uh, a lot of this goes back to, this is what we call an HVAC 2.0 sweet spot thinking. Um, where it, this is an S curve. It's called the sigmoid curve. This is a bell curve, but it's um, uh, plotted a little bit differently. Um, so what we think about is we want to get to 90% odds of success, if at all we can, on a project. Uh, 
But if you go a whole lot further than that, you can spend a whole lot more money, but not necessarily have significantly better results. But if you don't get to this level, you oftentimes don't get much in the way of results on the other side. Joe, you hanging in there, buddy? I'm back, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, Arnold. Um, I'm back. We will talk Starlink afterwards, buddy. Um, all right. It, it works pretty well, uh, and we're going to take it out west with our camper here in just a little bit. Uh, so in any case, we're trying to hit this sweet spot of where – spending more money doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense, but we're still getting really good results. So, and Joe, you were asking about like, where's that point and the one-to-one ratio in blower door uh, oftentimes is where this kind of lies. Like it might be 0.7, it might be 1.3, but it's, it's somewhere in the one-to-one ratio. And that works out to as much as I hate the ACH 50 uh, metric, it's something like a five ACH 50. So it's kind of tight, but it's not stupid tight. Um, uh, by any means, you know, with uh, the passive houses, like that's what you're shooting for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Now it's going to depend from house to house. Right. And what you you talked about the low hanging fruit. I don't know uh, when I was disconnected, if you talked about that a little bit more or not, where I know at the top and the bottom, but can you be a little more specific on that? Yeah, so low-hanging fruit, this would be like caulking the windows or just doing one thing to a house. Uh, So like maybe you just caulk the rim joists uh, in the basement of the crawl space, but that's really all that you do. Um, uh, It's This is where you're trying to get as much bang as as you can for a buck, but you're not thinking about it correctly. So another way to look at it is like going on a diet and saying, well, I'm just not going to eat dessert three nights a week. Well, you're not going to lose 10 pounds a week. Isn't that the area where you get the most resistance, though, is because it's not inexpensive to no. do this right? No, it's not. Um, so, I mean, it's it's pretty labor intensive is the biggest piece. So you can DIY. So I had two different audiences in mind as I was putting this together. So advanced DIYers, which I generally am. Um, and then HVAC contractors are oftentimes just kind of scared of the building science side. And the biggest piece of it is they're usually nervous about what does uh, the air sealing and the blower door stuff look like. And like most things in life, it's not actually that hard. It's just a lot of little pieces that you need to put together at the same time. You know, it's, it's building a puzzle. It's building a Lego set. No single step is that hard, but there's a lot to it. I'm curious, Nate, how often do these HVAC contractors get caught in because of indoor air quality issues, is it ever happen? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming once in a while, but I'm thinking probably not too often. It's not that often. And the, the curse is, for the most part, there's not a lot of good education out there. So they lean towards what they have marketed to them, which is typically going to be UV lights and PCOs and um, uh, th- things like that. Uh, it's it, silver bullets, basically. Silver bullets that generally come with other consequences, which actually in the HVAC 2.0 show, which we do every Monday night at 8.15, just last week, we talked about different air purifiers um, in the laser beam kind of way. Um, (laughs) I don't have any sharks. We have sea bass. Are they Um, (laughs) ill-tempered? So uh, 
the, uh, most of the air quality work that they're doing is not that useful is the problem because they don't know what to do. And, and actually, I'm, I kind of, as I was saying that, I thought to myself, you know, they're probably getting more indoor air quality complaints than they realize because a lot of their complaints are comfort related complaints, which are in essence, indoor air quality or indoor environmental quality complaints. Would, would you agree with that? Oh yeah. Well, definitely IEQ. Um, so, I mean, Robert Bean taught me that years ago. So yeah, it's it, it, HVAC has tremendous control over mean radiant temperature and air quality. If, if you can put out exactly as much heating or cooling as you need pretty much all the time, you'll wash all the surfaces in the house with slightly warmed or slightly cooled air, and the surfaces will get to a nice temperature. And fundamentally, comfort is driven by uh, surface temperatures for humans. We've got about 165,000 temperature sensors in our skin. Largely, it's our hands, face, feet, the things that stick out. Um, so, yeah, if you can make those happy, you're comfortable. Um, so HVAC contractors have huge control over air quality more than anybody else. And I mean, you could argue that HVAC contractors, we have more control over human health than anyone else. But they have less control when the home is leaky. Would that be fair to say? In general, yes. And how many of them realize that? Uh, Both of them. Um, no, it's more than that. Uh, <laughs> it's actually getting a lot more popular uh, within HVAC. Uh, but there's there's another curse of it, which is if you go too deep, like I, I, I view what we do, like I view HVAC 2.0 like a, a nice pool. So you got the shallow side and you got the um, the splash pad where all the kids can play and you don't have to worry about them. And then you, you got the five foot section for people doing laps um, uh, or maybe, maybe it's six or eight feet. And then you have the deep end. And the curse is if you dive into the deep end, the building science side too soon, you tend to get stuck and a lot of people kind of drown out there. Uh, So they get too detail oriented and then uh, they end up not doing any work. So they have tremendous understanding, but then they don't sell any projects. And so nothing gets done, nothing gets fixed. So that's because because their competition isn't going that deep into it and Customers aren't aware enough to realize that. Yep. Well, and you get super nerdy, like me. Uh, we call it being a home performance bonehead. Um, I've been one for years um, trying to figure out why Why won't anybody care about this or want to do anything? Um, well, I think they would care, but it's expensive as hell is, it, to do it right. I mean, isn't that really all the essence of the problem? Well, there's two pieces. I mean, the expensive is definitely part of it, but it takes quite a bit of knowledge to be able to do the harder projects. Good point. But if you can just get the right piece of HVAC in homes, it can fix all kinds of things. And then if you can do some blower door testing and understand where your big opportunities are. So it's this 30 to 50% air leakage reduction. This is typically what we find. Um, Like the, the basic reductions that you get from a utility program or something like that are usually like five to 20%. It's not enough to move the needle. You end up down here. Okay. Uh, so like, even if a house is relatively tight, there's one that comes in mind in, in particular, it was a 1970s two-story house. Wasn't crazy leaky. It was a 2000 square foot house, had a, I don't know, a 3000 blower door, 2800 blower door, something like that. Like it's mm-hmm. not that bad, but the leaks were in bad places. 
So Jim's office was super uncomfortable. It turned out it was a stairway. I've got photos in here if we get to them. Um, and uh, uh, then the master bedroom had a knee wall in the front and uh, there was a return duct in there that was really leaky to the outdoors. And so it was pulling outdoor air into the furnace and it wasn't pulling it out of the master bedroom. So the master bedroom never heated or cooled well between not getting enough airflow because it was getting uh, outdoor air scavenged from that return and then it having poor insulation. The master bedroom was never comfortable. So the house wasn't insanely leaky, but we got it down 35%. Uh, we got it down to about an 1800 from about a 3000. And uh, that was enough to tip that house. And he emailed me later. He's like, Nate, I'm retired now. But every time I go out, I realize how uncomfortable every place else is. And I just want to stay home. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good call to get. (laughs) That was a nice email to get from Jim. That's Um, real nice. Let's stop here. Thank our sponsors for halftime. And we'll come back. And in the second half, we'll get into a little more detail on the air, uh, air tightening, uh, air sealing, I should say. We'll be right back with our guest, Nate Adams. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Environmental Information Association, EIA's Multidisciplinary Membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974, TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back for the second half of our show with Nate Adams, the house whisperer, talking about the importance of air sealing for IAQ and energy efficiency. Nate, if you can hear me, because my internet is starting to do it again, uh, let me let you take the controls. Okay, yeah. so these are the four sections of the air sealing course. So I wanted to you know, give a little bit of a teaser and talk a little bit about it and hopefully take a few questions as well. Um, so these are the four sections. Uh, start with basics and concepts. Because if you don't have your head around why you're doing it, 
um, you're not going to do a good job. That's something we find consistently. Uh, what materials to use? Spent uh, some time on that. Um, and there's really only a handful, and they're all pretty commonly available ones. And then the biggest section of the course is common methods and assemblies. So I walk through all kinds of uh, different things. So for flat attics, for basements, for walls, for knee walls, uh, all of that. That's hours and hours and hours of it. That's well over half the course. And Wait, then how lastly, long does the course take? It's, to, 12, to take. it's 12 and a half hours of video. Okay. So um, it's not nothing, but also that's like two days of class. And you, you get well over a decade's worth of experience in here. So uh, it, it'll, it helps most people. The feedback's been really good on it thus far, and it's sold quite well. Um, uh, it, it, if you are at least somewhat mechanically minded, even if there's something that isn't in there, there's going to be enough information that you can interpolate and figure out what to do, which is part right. of what I was hoping for. While I've still got a decent connection here, I do have a question that's been kind of bubbling up in my mind here, and you're the guy I want to ask. The, okay. I want our audience to know a little bit about this too. I'm now seeing these do-it-yourself mini-split systems advertised, and the pricing is pretty good. Um how talented do I need to be to install that system? Uh, you don't need to be talented because oftentimes they have uh, the the lines come pre-charged with refrigerant. Uh, but the the big challenge with those is the the flare connections that come from factories tend to leak. So we fairly often hear of those failing within a year or two afterwards. And good luck getting the parts. So your option is basically to replace. Okay. That's generally how it goes. Um, now, they, they do have one that is a regular split system, and I, I think you have to get a pro in to uh, braze your lines together. So you probably could get that installed well enough because uh, you need to braze with nitrogen so you don't get any soot in the lines, and you want to vacuum it down very, very low so that pulls all the impurities off it. Well, it boils the impurities out of the lines. Um if you do those two steps, like that can easily double the lifespan of modern equipment. It's funny. It takes like an hour extra in an install now, and it doubles the life. Another quick, quick question while I have internet access here. Um, I'm seeing, okay, John Faith, our engineer, put in his own um, hot water heat pump. So it's a hot water oh, yeah. tank, but it's a heat pump hot water tank. And it, mm -hmm. it seems to be working really well. But I see contractors that communicate with you and yourself saying that um, they've had nightmare problems with the um, the quality of these heat pump water heaters. Tell yeah, our listeners the, a little bit about that. The, the heat pump water heaters have been no fun, um, which is annoying. Like the, the quality got really quite good for like 18 and 19. Like they, they've had bumps in the road for years, but it seemed like they had everything ironed out. And the past couple of years, there's been a bunch of refrigerant leaks and early failures with them, uh, which is frustrating. Now I've got two of them; they're both working fine. Um, but I've I've had multiple clients lose them. Uh, it, it's usually the refrigerant uh, that leaks out. Um, so, as much as I would love to recommend them, because it's 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 a great technology. I mean, it, it's they can save a, a massive amount of uh, energy. Like the typical 
electric water heater, like for you, Joe, where you don't have access to natural gas, which is one of the least expensive ways to heat water. Right. Uh, they'll typically use four to 5,000 kilowatt hours a year for a family of four or five, something like that for just resistance. Uh, the heat pump water heaters will usually use between 500 and a thousand kilowatt hours per year. So it uses like 70 or 80% less routinely is what we're seeing. And uh, that is enough. Most electric cars use four to 5,000 kilowatt hours a year. So technically hmm. it's enough. If you can switch from an electric resistance water heater to a heat pump water heater, that will fuel your car for the same money. Uh, overall the same energy usage so i i wish that they were working better than they are but yeah i'm i'm frustrated with them right now and the manufacturers know where i stand because um, i'm obviously a big electrification advocate but i'm like your tech needs to work and not break you know this has to be driving you nuts that you know you're a big electrification advocate the ira doesn't seem to be um what what you would hope these electric heat pumps aren't what you had hoped um, water heater show got to be a tough situation to be in it's it can be pretty frustrating so uh yeah send adult beverages um but uh you know it is what it is and we keep moving but there there's one really hopeful thing which is there's a repeated interest in another program which is to pay either the manufacturers or the distributors to only sell heat pumps no more air conditioners because you can run those as hybrids and there it'll usually work just fine um, and it's very, very little difference in install. Uh, you need a little bit better thermostat that can run a hybrid versus just a, a heat cool system. But uh, that idea, uh, well, Vancouver in Canada did it. The Canadian federal government is considering it really strongly. And there's a new bill coming up in U.S. Congress for that's aimed at distributors. So there's a chance on that. And that will make a big difference because going straight to electric, it's just a big jump for most people. It's it's a psychological problem. It's not really a technical one. I understand the technical side. It doesn't scare me anymore. I was scared the first couple of years, but I'm not scared anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, we it, the the first step is to make it so everything's a heat pump, and then you everybody has two heating fuel choices, and then you can vary depending on what electric and gas prices are or uh, what you know, whatever you have, whatever you want to do, um, you'll have two different choices. But because the heat pumps have lower outputs, they generally make a house more comfortable. So my buddy Jim Bergman, have you ever had Jim on? I have not. He, he would be an interesting guest. Um, so uh, uh, he heads up Measure Quick, where they can basically take a bunch of probes and understand what's going on with an HVAC system. That's kind of like OBD2 for cars where you plug a bunch of things in and it'll tell you a bunch of things that could be wrong. Um, super smart dude really understands how HVAC works, but he was a huge uh, gas fan. And uh, I browbeat him enough that he bought a heat pump. Another buddy of mine put it in and his wife prefers the heat from the heat pump by a long shot. Huh. Um, so uh, why is that? It runs more at a lower level. So it just, again, like I was saying earlier, just washes the surfaces with slightly heated or cooled air and uh, makes the house much nicer to be in. More so, consistent, yeah, Rob, I guess. It. Yeah. And that's that's what's messed with our minds through the years is we came at this from the shell side, the insulation and air sealing side, and we're shocked how many problems can be reduced or eliminated with HVAC alone. Which is kind of funny as we discuss the air sealing course, but some houses need this too. 
Let's jump back into the air sealing course. Go ahead and uh, give us a quick tutorial, if you would. We've probably got about 15 minutes left here, although I cannot see. <laughs> yeah, we're right about 15 minutes. Uh, well, w- you wanted to start with this, and I think this is a good place to start, even though it's technically the end of the course, which is talking about the four different types of homes. So in my mind, having been through you know, pushing 1,500 homes, uh, these are the four construction types. Uh, you may see some that are a variation of these, or there's two of them together. I had one client that uh, had a Cape Cod in the front, and the previous owner put a one-story addition in the back. It was like a ranch in the back. Um, but it was just two of these. So the the four types are you have a single story which is a ranch or sometimes known as a rambler out west. Two-story homes, oftentimes known as a colonial. One-and-a-half or two-and-a-half-story homes. So those have knee walls and sloped ceilings upstairs. So Cape Cods and bungalows. Um, uh, what's the other one that I'm trying to think of? Um, it's the barn-style one. Now my mind's blanking on the name of it right now. Uh, and then split levels is the other one, sometimes known as tri-levels. So, and these are the four types that almost everything is. So, Joe, I think you have a ranch for the most part, right? That's correct. Okay. Um, And I do now, too. A couple of houses ago, we had an old uh, two-story colonial, really old. It was 1835. It actually was borderline colonial. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) It was one of the very first houses built in the area that wasn't a uh, log cabin. Uh, But each one of these has kind of some standard issues. So this is actually where I'm sitting right now. This is our house in West Virginia. It's just a, it's a little manufactured home. Um, Came with four acres. The behind here is the new river of the new river gorge national park. So the half mile behind our house is that I'm sitting in this window right here. And this is uh, not a super easy one to deal with because it's all cathedral ceilings. So the only things I could deal with were the walls and the crawl space underneath. That's all I have to play with on this house. Um, but there are millions and millions and millions of houses uh, that are ranches that are like 600 to 2,000 square feet. I don't know for sure if it's the most common house type, but I would bet that it is because they are, they're just, they're easy and cheap to build. Like even if you build them poorly, they still stand up. Where if you build a two-story house wrong, they'll fall over sooner or later. Um, here's a two-story colonial. This is my buddy Tim's house. Uh, I helped him DIY his air sealing years ago. And there's a couple of different things that are routinely wrong with these. So uh, it's something called a knee wall. So a knee wall is a wall that has an attic on the other side. And so normally you think of that like in a a Cape Cod style home where you've got the four and a half or five foot foot walls on the sides of the room. On the second floor. Yep, on the second floor or the third sometimes. Oftentimes it's like a closet back there, like you said, like an attic. Yep. It usually gets hot and cold uh, all the time. But in these, a really common thing you're going to see is a knee wall where the garage touches the second floor. So and sometimes these are not done well. So there might be insulation in there, but there's no cover over it. And oftentimes they're quite leaky. So this is one of the key areas that I look for when I audit a house like this. Um, sometimes the the rim or band joist between the floors is kind of leaky. I don't deal with this very often because from a stack effect perspective, it doesn't really matter. So in a stack effect in the wintertime, you have cold air coming in the bottom and warm air coming up the top. So that means you've got pressure up top and pressure on the bottom. So in the middle 
there's not a whole lot of pressure. And to have to actually have a leak, you need a hole and pressure. You have to have both. So this oftentimes isn't a big deal unless you've got a house that's like in a field that gets a whole bunch of wind against it, and then it could matter. Um, but th- just a couple of key things. And again, this is the the tail end of the course uh, where I've gone through all of the concepts before I touch any of this stuff. This was our old house in Cleveland Heights, and it's it's funny. These couple of pictures are uh, basically personal, but there's tons and tons of clients in here as well. Um, but the this is a Cape Cod. So the second floor in these is routinely 10 or 15 degrees different from the first. That's the most common complaint you get. They're mm-hmm. usually super leaky. Um, so it's the, the underneath the knee walls here is a huge leakage point. So oftentimes this is half the leakage in the house. So this house had a 5,000 blower door. And I bet if we did a good job on all those, we'd get it down to somewhere between two and 3,000. And this is a 1600 square foot house. So by just dealing well with the knee walls of this house, we could probably get it close to that one-to-one ratio that we like to see. Now I did it differently because this is before my house whispering days. Would you suggest focusing first on the, the high, the holes up high and then going down to the bottom ones? Okay. Because if you fix the ones up high, there's nowhere for that, that air to go that is uh, rising because of the stack effect oftentimes. For, yeah, for uh, winter stack effect, yes. For summer stack effect, it's called reverse stack effect. And that's where if you've ever been in a house on a hot day, you're like, it smells like attic in here. You can smell the fiberglass, and oftentimes it's mouse pee is part of what you're smelling too. Um, and uh, so for that reason, in that case, like the bottom is more important. But the bottom and the top are your critical pieces. If you can seal those well, and get that 30 to 50% reduction, oftentimes houses are good enough. Doesn't mean there isn't more to do, but like you said, it's freaking expensive. And there's also almost no one that's good at this. And that's another reason that I want to put this out because I don't view this as difficult. It's just a bunch of little things you need to know. And while I'm not naturally an anal retentive person, good air sealing requires anal retentiveness. You just, you need to care and and, uh, keep hunting down the details. So the fourth housing type is a split level or a tri-level. Um, this is a client house. This is Peter's place. Um, so the the Cape Cods, these are the most difficult to work with in general and typically the leakiest. These are the second trickiest and second leakiest in general. Uh, so ductwork can be a pain in these because there's not many chases to run through uh, from downstairs to upstairs. So in this case, this house had a furnace and an air conditioner that just ran the second floor, which is obscene. It was like 500 square feet. You do not need a system for 500 square feet. Um, and then it had another one in the basement that ran, uh, this is uh, the office and bathroom. And then this is the living room and kitchen, everything over here. Um, so that second system ran the whole kind of basement and first floor, but these are really tricky um, to deal with. And these also have cantilevers. If you can see where this pops out about two feet right here, that is routinely a big leakage uh, point. And oftentimes we will get complaints of cold floors at the edge of the bedrooms. Not surprisingly, you're standing out over the outside basically, and you may have fiberglass in there, but fiberglass is not an air seal, which actually might be good to, well, here's inside of that. Just to that point, why don't I zip on? Here we go. Sweater versus windbreaker. So in understanding air sealing, this is a really critical concept. This, so this is out of my book. 
uh, the Home Comfort Books. This first chapter, you can download it for free at natethehousewhisperer.com. It costs an email. Uh, uh, but uh, imagine that I am just a mean jerk and I put you out on a, a pier when it's 25 degrees outside, the wind's howling, and you are out there in a t-shirt and jeans. That's all you got. And I cruelly give you the choice between either a really loose-knit sweater with big holes in it or a windbreaker. You can only have one. Which one do you want? The windbreaker. Every time. Ideally, you want both because that makes a good coat. Um, but most houses, like that, uh, the cantilever that I was showing, uh, where it sticks out in the front of the house, that just has fiberglass under there. Fiberglass is basically this loose-knit sweater. If you don't seal that fiberglass in a cavity, it doesn't work for squat. And now, as soon as you seal fiberglass in, and I was not a big believer in fiberglass for a while, uh, but there was one new home that we helped out with, and the builder just did plain old R13 walls, R30 or R38 attic, and uh, he got it really tight. And that 5,000-square-foot house cost $1,000 a year to heat and cool, 75 bucks a month on average. I mean, just nothing to do that. Um, so the fiberglass works if you put it in a sealed cavity, but you need to have the sweater and the windbreaker to have it work. And a lot of houses are missing this windbreaker. So if how you do let you, air get how would through, you that fiberglass that? doesn't work. How do you fix it? Yeah. That's, um, that's Cause we're, we're running low on time. Let's get into the, how do we fix that? That's one of the most common problems I find. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, doing construction, go ahead. Well, so the one that I loaded in here, like I, I go through a ton of different assemblies um, in great detail, but here's one dealing with, uh, this is interior top plates of a house. Uh, so this is a hallway. The, the, see these top plates here? These are four feet apart, three and a half feet apart. This is the hallway in Jim's house that I was talking about earlier. Um, the stairway is just to my right here, uh, just off camera. You can't see it. And, um, but this is how you would spray foam to seal a bunch of interior top plates. Um, so this is two-part closed cell foam. This is with a professional rig. You can do this with uh, just a two-part kit if you want as well. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, but uh, this is what it looks like. And I'm still in like the concept stuff. Here's the blower door. Let me flip through. Oh, a couple of things that I think might be useful just to pause uh, as we, we go to see more of the detail of what that one looks like. Uh, this is a blower door and infrared. I call them Batman and Robin. Infrared's definitely Robin. Robin's not nearly as good without Batman. Um, doesn't mean he's useless, but kind of close. Um, I don't know if you can drive. Uh, so kind of tough to get the Batmobile there if you can't drive. Uh, but when you run a blower door, you get to see where leaks are. And this is really helpful. Or And so sometimes this is a key thing that's at the beginning of the course. In interpreting infrared, uh, there's two main things you're looking for. You're either looking for fingers, which is air leakage, or blobs, which is lack of insulation. So I've got two examples here. There's a LED. Uh, well, actually, this, this is just a recessed light before it got LED'd. Um, uh, but you can see how the air is coming out like in fingers. It's coming out in streams. That tells you there's an air leak there. Where in this wall, part of this is insulated, or that might be the door, but above the wall, you can see the studs. And then where it's cold, that is a lack of insulation. So that could be settled uh, material, or it could have just not been insulated well, or not insulated at all. Uh, 
but that's a big chunk of how you interpret this because uh, that's that's a key thing bunch on materials how to deal with uh, this is indoor air quality stuff we might do a show on this one time joe i think you'd love this i was using indoor air quality monitoring while doing spray foam jobs um, yeah uh, this is kind of fun what's the uh, takeaway from that one uh ventilate for two weeks and uh, all you really have to do is leave some windows cracked that that's enough a window at the bottom of the house window at the top uh, but also ventilate while you are blowing or while you're spraying. Uh, so like this, you can see the spikes weren't significant while we did the job. So this is while we were spray foaming, but the VOC levels weren't getting very high. They got high when I did quality control on the job and I put the blower door in and sucked on the house with negative pressure. Then I, I brought all the nasty stuff into the house. Um, from those attic areas but yeah this is it's kind of fun to look through those all right jumping on there's all right we've got about five minutes nate so let's uh get to the the tail end the tail end of things here and well here just going to have to do this again we can do another one and we can look at some other assemblies so here's an exterior top plate assembly really common um, and top plates are critical because in stack effect, they're at the top of the wall, they're top of the house. And they also typically are not well insulated. Uh, they also have wind blowing through there from the, the soffit vents. So this is a very difficult place to deal with. Here's what that looks like in an actual photo. This is Tim's house. I'm thankful he, he gave me this. this is the only photo I have like this. And here's what the fix looks like. So you put a ventilation baffle in. And uh, then you use closed cell foam. You have to get the insulation off the top plate. And usually what we do is we spray to the baffle and we spray to the top plate. And then we hit it again and we get it to all close together. And you end up with a whole lot of R value right over top of the top plate. Uh, So this stops wind washing where the wind can't come through here and blow the insulation back. And you get a good air seal and you get a bunch of R value right over top of that uh, pretty serious weak point in most houses. So this is just one example of, geez, there's got to be 50 different assemblies in the course that I go over. And you're going to have to put that closed cell all along that top plate through through the whole attic. Yep. And this uses a ton of material. So this is where it's usually better to bring in a professional rig to do it. Um, Because it's just a lot of material. And my foam rule is if you need more than one spray foam kit, uh, hire it out. What do they go for now? About 700 bucks for a spray foam kit or do they hire now? Uh, 800 now. 800? Okay. Yep. Yep. And how many square feet ballpark is that? Uh, It's about 500 board feet. So a board foot is a foot square by an inch thick. Okay. Great information, Nate. Great information. No problem. Before we go, let's get any final thoughts. I didn't get a chance to look. I'm sorry if there were any text questions. We're having some technical issues with uh, Comcast, the worst company in the history of the world. Um, And uh, we'll we'll, we'll clean it up in the editing there, John. But uh, before we go, Nate, final thoughts, final things that you want to make sure we cover before we go. The the biggest thing is... Air sealing is not actually that difficult. Um, it's just a whole bunch of little things to know. That's that's really all it is. Um, 
but if you have comfort or air quality issues in your home or you routinely bump into clients that have that, air sealing is routinely what the answer is. And this is this is how you do all of that. It's just a skill. I mean, you do your training classes where you teach people how to do remediation and so forth. Uh, this is the same thing for that. So it's also very labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah. And and you need some labor that is um, diligent, but but also detail oriented. They they you know they they've got to realize that. Um, it takes time. You have to do it right. You have to do it properly. And if you do that, now we have control over the air in that indoor environment. And if there are issues still, we have a better chance of controlling those issues. Yep. Now you can use whatever your control mechanisms are, you know, be, be that through the whole house HVAC or uh, a room air purifier or a room dehumidifier, you know, whatever it might be. Um, now you actually have a chance of winning the war. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I don't recall if we, we got to this, but um, as far as energy efficiency goes, mm-hmm. air sealing versus adding more insulation, which is more important? Well, it depends. You need some insulation, uh, but beyond about R10 or R20, which is like three to six inches of insulation, in general, air sealing becomes more important. So just by swinging... Uh, air leakage in a home, I can skew a load calc as much as plus or minus 70%. Not touching our values or windows or anything like that, just air leakage. So it, it's a really significant piece. So it's, it's another challenge that if you don't know what the blower door number of a house is, I don't care how good you say you are, you don't know what the load calc of that house is. You just don't. You're guessing because you could be missing easily half the equation. You know, it might be low, it might be high. Who knows? And one other thing, commercial buildings. Um, are you doing anything with that now as far as air sealing courses? Are you strictly residential? And how much more complicated is dealing with air sealing in commercial buildings versus residential? Um, so this is just residential, and I have so little commercial experience that I can't necessarily tell you. But the gotcha. couple of commercial buildings I've looked at, made leaky homes look tight. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> That's my experience too, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when the air barrier is basically your drop ceiling with some fiberglass sitting on top of it, and then it's just like open to the outdoors above that, like, that's yep. not a good shell. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's a very common, especially in old schools. We find that a lot, um, a lot of problems with air barriers in old schools and, and, and many commercial buildings. It's a, it's a it's a problem that we're going to have to attack. I don't think we are going after that as as uh, you know the IRA doesn't. I don't know if it touches this type type of thing, does no, it? it? It doesn't. And frankly, I don't know how much we're going to address it because renewables are going to allow energy to remain cheap, and basically until energy is expensive, people don't fix it. Nate, I want to thank you. I'm not sure if I'm still on or not, but thank you so much for joining us this week. We're going to have to do it again um, and get a little more time for you to get into a little more detail. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Nate, the house whisperer, Adams, on the importance of air sealing for IAQ and energy efficiency. Before we go, I want to make sure we mention next week's show. We've got Andrew Saul of Complex Claims Resolution for the next episode of IAQ Radio. I want to thank our 
audience, our uh, sponsors, and um, my co-host, the Z-Man, couldn't make it. He won't be here today, but he'll be putting the blog together for this show. John, you got to have faith at the controls, and uh, we'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.